Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this. Paula Schleiss. I would love to go back in time for just one day to experience Marietta, Ohio, in its heyday as a river town. It must have been something. The primitive frontier, the boats coming in from the east to trade, or carrying settlers to what was then the Wild West. I'm sure it was a rough-and-tumble settlement at that time, its docks bringing in all manner of humanity. But... I did say I'd just stay the one day. The town's early growth began on Ohio Street, the main road along the river. It made sense to keep the business district within walking distance of the harbor. But then a man opened a tavern to satisfy those thirsty river workers. Reportedly, he ran out of whiskey in a single afternoon. Well, if it wasn't evident before, it was now. There was a huge, untapped market, though it wouldn't be that way for long. Taverns started sprouting along Ohio Street like weeds, and with it, all the things that usually follow such development, including prostitution and gambling and general crime. The more respectable business owners got fed up with the seedy environment, and they moved off of Ohio Street en masse, and started over on Front Street, which became the mainstream shopping district. In doing so, that left Ohio Street to the rogues and 'er ne'er-do-wells. Fortunately for lovers of history, there is an original riverfront structure still on Ohio Street. It's the only original riverfront structure. It's been called many things in its 200 years, 
Today, it's the Levy House at 127 Ohio Street. There's a sweet-looking restaurant there, 100 feet from the riverbank. And though I've never been, if I were to stop in Marietta, it would be a mandatory experience. The restaurant is only its most recent reincarnation. It was originally built in 1826 as a dry goods store by Dudley Woodbridge, who is sometimes credited with being the first merchant of the Northwest Territory. After Dudley moved on, the building became a hotel to serve river travelers. Later, as Ohio Street was given over to the seven deadly sins, the hotel, La Belle, took its place as a favorite destination for people in pursuit of, well, more fleshy activities. So we've set the scene, and this is the chapter of Marietta we're going to tonight. The late 1800s, an Ohio street that is filled with bars, bedellos, and flop houses, and the LaBelle Hotel. The exact year of this legend is unknown, but the tellers of this story usually put it in the 1870s. Local historians describe the interior of the LaBelle at that time as a feast for the eye. Chinese vases, floral wallpaper, tasseled drapes, velvet chase lounges, and potted palms, oriental rugs, and every bedroom featuring a large brass bed. Into this scene walked Charlie. Charlie, we don't have his last name, was one of the wealthier residents of Marietta, who lived uptown with his wife and children. It's unclear how he made his money. Some storytellers say he was an oil tycoon. Charlie is always described as a real looker, the kind of man that women fawn over and that young men aspire to be like. Apparently, that wasn't enough for Charlie, who reached a point in his life where success and family and business wasn't enough. He began to slip out of the house late at night and patronize LaBelle, where he met a beautiful, dark-haired, blue-eyed woman named Liz. The affair, at first, was a closely held secret. What happens in LaBelle stays in LaBelle, right? But later, Charlie and Liz became a little sloppy, and rumors about their trysts circulated until finally... It got back to Charlie's family. At the very least, it reached the ears of Charlie's oldest son, a 14-year-old boy whose name has been lost to history. Charlie's son begged his father to end the affair and stop bringing shame to the family. But Charlie couldn't help himself. He was too smitten with Liz to leave her alone. The affair continued. Well until Charlie's son decided it would continue no longer. The boy had been following Charlie. He knew not only that they went to LaBelle, he figured out which bedroom was their regular meeting place and exactly how to reach it. One night, Charlie left home. His son guessed where he was going. He went into the family's basement and grabbed an axe, then started the walk from uptown to the riverfront. 
Sandy Gervis, the author of Myths and Mysteries of Ohio, suggested in her telling of the story that the boy probably didn't look out of place wielding the tool. This was a working man's settlement. It was common to see men carrying tools of all sorts. An axe could be used for so many things, though it was not intended for what Charlie's son had in mind. The son reached LaBelle, then proceeded to do what he no doubt had rehearsed in his mind many times. He stormed the hotel, ran up the stairs directly to the bedroom that Charlie and Liz always used, and flung the door open. We don't know if they exchanged any words or struggled. Most tellings of this story have a quick ending. The boy enters the room, swings the axe, and decapitates his father with a single blow. With Liz's screams behind him, he turned, ran down the stairs, and, unmolested, tore out into the night. But the boy would not run for long. Everyone knew who he was and where he lived. Within the hour, authorities found him, jailed him, and charged him with first-degree murder. Back then, it didn't take long to arrange a trial, and probably within the month, the boy would have found himself in front of a jury pleading his case. His family's honor, the disrespect shown to his mother, that visceral emotion of a teenager watching his family structure crumble under the rumors and the loss of reputation. The story hit its mark. The jury sympathized they let the boy off scot-free. This seems so unlikely, and yet I'm reminded of a recent episode of Outlander, if you've ever seen that streaming series. In it, a female prisoner pretends to be a murderess rather than a forger, which is what she's really in jail for, because, as another inmate explains, Forgery was a capital offense in colonial America. There was no real defense for it. Forgery wasn't a crime of passion, but murder could be. So if you were facing a murder charge, there was always hope. In the case of Charlie's son, his passion was forgiven. The label was later sold, and by the early 1900s, it was the Golden Eagle Saloon, serving up drinks and women. When Prohibition made alcohol illegal, the building sat vacant for a while, and then it became a liquor store, then an auto repair shop, and for a time, it was even a factory where Studebaker automobiles were assembled. In 1937, a flood threatened to take the historic structure out, but it weathered that near catastrophe. In the 1960s, All of Ohio Street was pretty much abandoned as Marietta struggled to recover from the loss of the river travel that once fueled its economy. Lots of old, decrepit buildings came down, and for a time, it seemed the old LaBelle Hotel would be one of the casualties. But in 1980, a local man named Harley Noland bought it with the intent of turning it into a restaurant. Noland said he bought it from three men who had won it in a card game, if that gives you any indication of what state the property was in. 
Anyway, people were skeptical of Nolan's plans, that a former whorehouse in a dreary part of a business district that had seen better days wouldn't make it. But turns out, Marietta residents appreciate their special history. The restaurant did well. A couple of different restaurant owners have taken over since then. Currently, it's the Levy House Bistro, open Monday through Saturday for lunch and dinner. Now, part of the structure is three stories high, and that part includes apartments where those old hotel rooms used to be, including the place where Charlie is said to have been beheaded. Now, if you love a good ghost story, you'll be happy to know that Charlie and even Liz are said to linger there. Residents of Levy House have told stories of cold drafts that come from nowhere, candles that blow themselves out or light themselves with no help, and just a general sense that someone unseen is in the room. Tenants apparently have also complained that sometimes late at night, they can hear someone slowly climbing the stairs from the first to the second floor. Then there's about four or five minutes of silence, followed by a sound as if someone is running down the steps. So maybe Charlie's son is still hanging around as well. Lynn Sturdevant, who I believe has given ghost tours and has authored a book called Haunted Marietta, said she believes the building is full of psychic energy. The way she described it, after an intense event, residual energy can remain behind and replay over and over like a tape loop. Now, while this story of Charlie's beheading is legendary, I couldn't find a single original documented source of it. I did, however, find another Marietta story, well documented, about two men attempting to resolve a dispute with an axe. It happened on August the 2nd, 1884, between John B. Walters and George Edward Meisenhelder. Walters and Meisenhelder were not bar-brawling hooligans. They were respected business owners. But for years, they had also been sworn enemies. Nothing violent up to now, just frequent quarrels that no one really understood the source of. Walters was a grocer. Meisenhelder was a marble cutter, his store adjacent to the grocer. Something set Walters off that day. Nobody is sure what, though it was said Walters did have a quick temper. The story written about this event in the Wheeling Sunday Register said that, without warning, Walters walked into the meat shop of a friend, picked up a hatchet, and walked out without a word. He went directly to Meisenhelder's Marble House, and with Meisenhelder's back to him, and apparently unaware of what was coming, was attacked by Walters, who planted the hatchet in the back of his head. According to the Marietta Register, that blow, quote, cut a fearful gash on the back of the skull, exposing the brain to view. Walters swung a few more times, landing at least one more blow on the arm. 
Reports said Walters and Meisenhelder were soon both covered in blood. A couple of workmen who were in the marble store were so stunned by what had just happened, it took a moment for them to move it all. The Wheeling newspaper said the workmen finally collected themselves, charged forward, and grabbed Walters and held him for police. The story in the Marietta paper, however, did not end there. In that account, Walters ran out of the store, hatchet in hand, with a mind to killing Meisenhelder's brother, who owned some sort of store at the harbor. A workman at the marble shop ran after Walters, and he was able to call ahead to the brother so he could avoid Walters' fury. So Walters satisfied himself instead by destroying the man's store, swinging his hatchet at everything until a constable arrived to arrest him and hustle him off to jail. Miraculously, George Meisenhelder survived and recovered. Walters refused to talk after his arrest, so townspeople could only speculate as to what set it all off. One guess was that it had something to do with a debt. Another was that the Meisenhelder brothers may have interfered with Walters' efforts to court a young woman. But really, it remains a mystery to all but the men involved. Sandra Gervis, I mentioned she's the author of Myths and Mysteries of Ohio, called attention to the fact that beheadings in Marietta are a bit ironic. The city was named after Queen Marie Antoinette in honor of France's role in the American Revolution. And we all know Marie lost her head in 1792. That was just four years after Marietta, Ohio was founded. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.